Let's take a few moments in silence and you share with the Lord your desire to be responsive to the ministry of God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Again, Father, we thank you for the living Christ, the spirit you've given to live within those who are believers, and the written word. As we interact with Christ, the spirit, and your word this morning, we want to be sensitive to who you are, Father, and how you have revealed yourself. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Over the course of the last seven weeks, we have discussed the resources that the believer has in Christ. We've discussed manhood, womanhood, fatherhood, motherhood. We've discussed childhood. We also last week, or several weeks ago, discussed the glory of God, that in our day-by-day living, our ultimate desire and passion should be God's glory. And as we think about being men, women, fathers, mothers, being children, we need to understand that underlying all of them is the gospel of Christ. There is no way to be a man, a woman, father, a mother, a child, or have the resources that have been made available to us apart from the gospel of Christ. And the chart is God's plan. He has no other. He wants our lives to be transforming as we live in light of the gospel. The gospel transforms lives not methods. We talk about methods in Christianity, but God's method seems to be transforming life through the gospel of Christ. Will we even need to discuss methods if our lives are being transformed? And I would pose a question, why should you even listen? Why should any of us listen to what we're discussing this morning concerning the gospel of Christ? I want to give you a biblical reason for listening this morning. Just listen as I read from Galatians 1. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, Some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. The gospel is vital, is critical 
and day-by-day living. Is our message correct? A couple of thought questions. With whom does the gospel of Christ begin? With whom does the gospel of Christ begin? What do you think about this statement? Christ died for us because he saw potential in us. Christ died for us because he saw potential in us. Would you agree or disagree? What can a person do to be saved from sin? What can a person do to be saved from sin? Think about the questions and the statement as we interact with God's word this morning. A general overview of the gospel of Christ, we have a message. There's a conviction of the Holy Spirit. As the conviction of the Holy Spirit takes place and there is repentance and there is faith, one enters into some relationships. And because of the message, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and one's repentance and faith entering into some relationships with God, with the body of Christ and with the world, there's a transformation that takes place in life. This morning, we want to focus on the message. So what is the gospel? We want to think about the message of the gospel. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Just refer to a few verses in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And verse 6, And God said, Let there be expanse between the waters to separate the water from waters. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry ground appear, and it was so. In verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as markers to mark seasons and days and years, and let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. In verse 20, And God said, Let there be, or let the waters teem with creatures and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the sky. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now let's go over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Remember, as you read through the Gospel of John, that the Gospel of John and its purpose is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the Gospel of John kind of has a frame at the beginning 
the deity of Christ is presented very strongly. At the end, it is also presented through the resurrection. And between John 1 and John 20 and 21, we find the other chapters where he lives his life demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be. But John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, the Word, according to verse 14, is referring to Christ. In verse 3, through Him, through the Word, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And we'll stop reading there. But you'll find that the message of the gospel begins with a creator God. Genesis 1 and 2. John 1, 1 through 4. You could turn to Hebrews 1 and 1 through 4. You will find there that it speaks again of God creating the universe through Jesus. And the third theme of Hebrews is that Christ is better than Moses, Aaron, the prophets, and so on. He's creator. The creator God. He's the standard. He sets the pace. He created Adam and Eve in his image. And we today are in God's image. He gave some absolutes in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. He told the man to take care of the Garden of Eden to work it. And he said, you meet it for any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And death came. In Genesis chapter 4, as Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God, Cain's was rejected because Cain did not follow what God had stated. In light of there being a creator God, there's also accountability to him. So we think about the gospel of Christ. We're dealing with creator God. He's the standard. He issues some absolutes. And there's an accountability to him. Involved with the message of the gospel is what we call the fall. Sin. Separation. We know in Genesis 3 that... When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave also some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And we know that as a result, they hid from God. And God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. There's sin. There's separation. There's what we call the fall. Very, very definitely part of the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 1 tied in with the issue of the fall. Romans 1 and verse 18. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul gives a very detailed treatment of sin 
and then he moves into Christ. But in Romans 1 and verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what be me known about God is made plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has revealed himself in creation. The text clearly states that his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. What happens in verse 21? For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he goes on to say they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. They reject what God has revealed in creation. In light of that, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And he goes on to describe some of the sin that people commit. Now go over to chapter 3. Paul concludes the whole issue of sin in verse 9, Romans 3 and verse 9. What shall we say then? Are we any better, that is, are the Jews any better than the Greeks? Not at all. We have already made the charge that all Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. and the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The entire human race is dead. Humans enjoy the prison of sin. Humans desire the bondage of sin. Dead people don't desire God. They're separated from God. Humans are separated from God. Some may commit more, that should be more sins, than others. But think about the fact that the whole human race is in the same boat together. Separated from God. Alienated from God. In that boat, we have a guy like Hitler. We have gossipers. We have homosexuals. We have self-righteous individuals. And you. We're all by nature separated from God. 
were dead. I'm in the same boat as Hitler. We say, look at what he did. I'm in the same boat as Hitler. I'm separated from God. I'm dead. I'm in sin apart from Christ. Sometimes we look at people and say, oh, they're really bad. They may have committed many sins, but we're in the same boat as them. We're separated from God. We have the same sin nature. We, by nature, depend upon self. Whether it be Hinduism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, some forms of Christianity or other isms in our world, they all depend upon self. What must I do? Dead people can't do. You're talking to someone and they bemoan how terrible of a person they are. I'm really a terrible person. And you try to convince them they're really not that bad. You probably need to give up convincing them. They say, I'm really a terrible person. Say, yes, you are. By nature, you're in sin. You're separated from God. And it's only through Christ that there can be a change. See, the message of the gospel involves God's grace. God pursuing people who are created in his image. If you're still in Romans, just go to the next page maybe to Romans 5. And verse 6, Romans 5 and verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. He pursued us, dead, separated from God. He did not have to rescue us. He does not need us. He's independent. He's self-existing. He didn't see good in us. It's not that he saw worth in us. It's because of his grace. Let's imagine you have a six-year-old son whom you love dearly. Tragically, one day you find out that your son was horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators of the crime find the killer. You have a choice. If you use every possible means in your power to kill the murderer for his crime, that would be vengeance. If, however, you're content to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and execute on him what is proper, a fair trial, a plea of guilty, capital punishment, That is justice. But if you should plead for the pardon of the murderer, forgive him completely, invite him into your home, and adopt him as your own son, that is grace. Beloved, grace is the core of the gospel. 
Because in grace is Christ. In grace is Christ. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The overall thrust of Hebrews is that Christ is better than Moses, Aaron, the prophets, and so on. Also tied in with Hebrews is perseverance because of Christ working in our lives. The believer perseveres. And in Hebrews 9 and 10, he's talking about Christ. And the fact that what was offered in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, what was offered in the temple, did not take away sin. But Hebrews 10 and verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, will they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been clear, cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Or take away sins. Can't happen. And he goes on to talk about Christ. But look at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There is a constant doing in the Old Testament, a constant doing under the sacrificial system. Verse 12 says, but when this priest, Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There was a constant doing in the Old Testament. You'll find religions today, they're constantly doing. Christ says, it's done. It's done. It's done. Nothing more can be done. It's Christ and Christ alone. What do I have to do? I can't do anything. I'm dead. got to be of Christ, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which we'll discuss next week. See, the Gospels are so strong in the character, the identity, the being of Jesus. The work of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection is being seen or essential, core to the Gospel. But it doesn't stop there. He's in glory. He's done. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's done. It becomes an issue of repentance and faith in Christ and what he has done. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. 
So God sent us a Savior. What is the message of the cross? We're dealing with a creator God. We're dealing with a fall. We're dealing with sin. We're dealing with separation. We're dealing with God's grace, his pursuit of people. And we're dealing with Jesus Christ, his character, his being, his identity, his work, his death, and his glory. That's the gospel. We may talk about manhood. We may talk about womanhood. We may talk about fatherhood and motherhood and childhood. We may talk about the resources in Christ. But none of that is possible apart from the gospel of Christ. All the religions and isms of the world are doing. What else must I do? What else must I do? What else must I do? God says, it's done. In Christ. This chart is God's plan, and it's only a chart. He has no other plan. Through the gospel, life's being transformed. The gospel transforms lives, not methods. We talk about methods, but God's method is transforming lives through the gospel. Well, we even need to discuss methods if our lives are being transformed. My question is simple. What have you done? What have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the gospel? Has there been repentance of sin? Has there been faith in Christ? It's not how good I live. It's not how well-behaved I am. It's not how good of a husband I am or how good of a father or how good of a man I am or how good of a lady or gal you are. Dead people need life. And that life is only offered through Christ. Have you come to faith in Christ? Have you repented of sin and exercised faith in him? Ponder that. I have a little more to say about that in a few minutes. On a dark, stormy night when the waves rolled like mountains and not a star was to be seen, a boat rocking and plunging near the Lorraine Harbor at Cleveland. Are you sure this is Cleveland? Asked the captain, seeing the light from the lighthouse. Quite sure, sir, replied the pilot. But where are the lower lights? They're out, sir. Can you make it? We must or we'll perish, sir. 
With a strong hand and a brave heart, the old pilot turned the wheel. But alas, in the darkness, he missed the channel. And with a crash upon the rocks, the boat was silvered, and many lives were lost in watery graves. It was D.L. Moody preaching and using as an illustration the story that had first appeared in the Chicago papers. It was an actual account by the captain who had been one of the few fortunate enough to escape death. Behind the tragedy of that night was a story, by then known to most of those in the audience, a story of a careless negligence, not intended to cause a tragedy, yet it did. Let me tell it to you, this is Al Smith saying, as it was relayed by George Stibens, a close friend and associate of both D.L. Moody and B.P. Bliss, or B.P. Bliss. It was around the time that I had arrived in Chicago, which was 1869, that there appeared in the newspapers an account of a ship being wrecked on the shores of Lake Erie near Cleveland, Ohio. The account told of a place called Lorraine, which is situated on the shore west of Cleveland. There was built a special harbor for relief of the ships that would most certainly be wrecked if they tried to ride out some of the intense and dangerous storms that can hit our large inland lakes. This harbor had a channel running from Lake, Lake Erie into a large basin, an inner harbor. Once ships reached this, they were safe. At the entrance to this channel were rows of lights, which were lit at night and would show the ships where to enter. At the inner harbor, there, were placed, there was placed a large lighthouse. This was to help the ships which were far out. It seems on the very day the tragedy happened, the man who had the job of lighting the lower lights and keeping the lighthouse said to himself, I've been on this job for several years, and to date, not one ship has had to find the harbor at night. I just don't feel up to it today to go out and refill the oil reserves of the lamps along the shoreline. I think I'll forget about them just for today. I'll feel better tomorrow, and anyhow, I just know that no one will need those lights tonight. And so when night came, he went to bed, little dreaming that in a matter of a few short hours, his unconcern would cost many lives and his burden his conscience for the remainder of his life, which something he would never forget. For that very night, a turbulent and destructive storm swept across Lake Erie. Some of the ships were able to ride out the storm, some were not, but none so tragic as the one that Mr. Moody described in his sermon, which was so close to safety and yet wrecked because of one man's neglect. Mr. Bliss, who was in the audience that night, and Mr. Todd Stibens, who told me, Mr. Bliss said to him, you know, George, I've read the newspaper accounts, and I must admit I was shaken by the fact that one man's negligence could cost, be so costly. But it was when I heard Mr. Moody use it as an illustration in his message that I cried out to heart, my heart to God, Bliss, you're just as guilty as the man in the story. As a Christian, you're to be one of the lower lights shining brightly so that some poor soul tossed along the sea of life may find safety and everlasting life in the haven that God has prepared. George, I couldn't dismiss the thought from my heart neither from my mind. It overwhelmed me that the very next week I wrote the song, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. Travis?